0: Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No.
1: Overall wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. How's
0: Obama going to illegal that uh, uh, I mean,
1: world leaders laughed right. at new President new Trump. Right, Trump can You know what it is? My new slogan, 2020.
0: America Great!
1: Welcome back to another episode of 2020 Vision, the United States Studies Center's weekly podcast following the race for the White House and the issues dominating the campaign trail as we edge ever closer to the 2020 US presidential election. I'm Drew Sheldrick, and in this episode, we're previewing next week's summit between US President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Vietnam. We'll also take a look at where the Democrats stand on bilateral negotiations with North Korea and lead up to the 2020 contest. As I guess this week, we have just the man to help us map the North Korean minefield, but before we meet him, let's take a listen to how we got to the latest installment of the Trump and Kim show.
0: A triumphant North Korea says its latest ballistic missile test demonstrates that it now has the capability to strike anywhere in the United States. Rocket man is on a suicide mission for himself. The era of strategic patience is over. North Korea, best not make any more threats to the United States, they will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. From North Korea, a unique threat, and from Kim Jong-un, a first message in English, vowing to make President Trump, quote, pay dearly, calling him a mentally deranged dotard. President Trump, they're announcing his blockbuster summit with Kim Jong-un in Singapore, June 12th. Kim Jong-un wants to do something great for his people, and he has that opportunity, and he won't have that opportunity again. It's never going to be there again. Here
1: you had a thug, a person who has, uh, a want state, uh, being
0: legitimized by the president of the United States. And then we fell in love. Hey. No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters. Chairman Kim and I will meet again on February 27th and 28th in Vietnam.
1: Dr. Van Jackson is an American political scientist and former Pentagon official who advised the White House and the US Secretary of Defense on issues related to North Korea during the Obama administration. He's also the author of a new book titled On the Brink, Trump-Kim and the Threat of Nuclear War. And by some stroke of luck, he's in Sydney this week, just days before the second US-North Korea summit. Van Jackson, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, man.
1: Uh, we know President Trump is a big fan of these sort of grandiose events, the military parades, the State of the Union addresses, the international summits. Uh, what do you think he most wants out of this sort of second summit? Is he going to want strong policy commitments out of North Korea or do you think he's going to settle for the event itself?
0: So he's already sort of publicly tipped his hand that he doesn't really care about this summit except as a, a generator of good news. He wants this to be a victory. He has Kim Jong-un now knows this because it's it's public. The only standard he wants from Kim Jong-un is no missile tests, no nuclear tests, because he, I guess, finds it embarrassing. At this point in the, life, uh, the lifespan of North Korea's nuclear program, testing is not strictly necessary right. for them to sustain the capability that they have. So this is a very easy win-win in the sense that Trump, ha- Trump has defined the bar of success rather low, mm-hmm. and it's very compatible with what Kim Jong-un wants. The problem is that it doesn't require anything particularly of... of of Kim Jong-un on the nuclear side.
1: Um, uh, What does North Korea want out of this meeting? I mean, is this still about a a desire for them to legitimize the the regime, do you think?
0: So there's an element of that, yeah. So There's no no one single answer or goal for what Kim Jong-un wants. Uh, I think he wants to see what he can get. Because, like, he described Trump in 2017 as a dotard, so uh, a senile old bastard. Right? Right. His, his words, not mine. Yes, his yes, words. yes. Yeah. But that, that's, that's the mindset. And that's, that's also an apt characterization that most people would have of Trump, whether you like him or not, right? He's old, he's bumbly, yeah. right? uh, he's not a master of, of detail or fact, even. And so that is what it is. So Kim Jong un is in a position where he can deal directly with this guy who he's clearly made book on, just like all foreign leaders have made book on Trump at this point. And he's going to see what he can get, right? The first summit went smashingly for Kim Jong-un. And so this summit, Kim Jong-un does need at some point economic sanctions relief. Uh, Developing the economy is a priority. Mm -hmm. Now that he has nukes to a level where he feels, you know, somewhat secure, he can focus on the economy. It's not clear if that means reforms along the lines of China or Vietnam or whatever like that's a separate analytical question, but he does need sanctions relief You're not going to get rich if the US and the UN are squeezing you so uh, The the fastest path to sanctions relief is getting Trump to be like yeah, you know what? Maybe we should grant exemptions and sanctions waivers and blah blah yeah. blah So that's like a real concrete thing that Kim Jong-un wants beyond that. It's like Legitimacy, symbolism, get U.S. troops off the peninsula. Yep. Like, what, 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 what else you got? You know,
1: uh, as a former Pentagon official, what would your former colleagues be hoping for in terms of an outcome next week? Do you think there's a lot of faith within the Defense Department that there'll be some sort of meaningful resolution here?
0: Uh, the so the defense community is pretty quietly uh, skeptical and cynical, quietly because you know they're not in charge, so they're not going to try to uh, upset the apple cart. But you know, quietly, they're worried about what sounds very technical, which is readiness. Yeah. Uh, so you have troops in Korea to fight if something goes wrong or if North Korea attacks or whatever. For those troops to be able to do their job at an acceptable level of risk, they have to be ready to fight tonight. And that literally re- requires them to sort of exercise and train. And we've been in a training moratorium for since the first summit. Okay. Um, so they're not getting the training that uh, they would need to be ready to to fight tonight, which is their mantra. And up to this point, that's kind of okay, but at a certain point, you have to decide whether you're— are you just going to make an orderly beat and take troops off the peninsula, you know, slowly but surely? Okay, then you don't need the exercises. But if you're going to keep troops there, at some point you do have to have exercises. So they're concerned about the strategic reality, the, the military reality, taking on too much risk in the name of the political sort of freak show that's happening.
1: Um, I think was an interview with you somewhere where uh, you said that uh, your book publisher had two titles for your book, one if war broke out and one that didn't. Um, is it true that we really came close, closer than we thought anyway, in 2017 to some sort of nuclear war or conflict? So close that we
0: had to have two working titles for the book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: so
0: that's pretty close, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the the argument in the book is that you know, we came closer in 2017 and early 2018 than any time since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and the reason I say that is because we were on not one, but three paths to war. And it was those paths to war that I was kind of monitoring in real time as I was writing the book. That's what freaked me out. Right. That's what had a bunch of pundits on TV saying 50% chance of war, 60% chance of war. It's probably too high, but even a 5% chance of Armageddon is too high, right? Uh, So we needed to be focused on managing risks, and managing risks meant sort of winding back these pathways to war. Uh, And we were not doing that in 2017. We were just big fat ignoring these paths to war. So that's sort of what the book is. It's built around these different paths to war, how close we came and how things could have easily gone wrong. And we just got lucky in many instances. Uh,
1: How helpful do you think were the fire and fury comments in the—I think it was the UN General Assembly when Trump was uh, talking about North Korea there? I mean, how how did that uh, help the situation? Super not helpful. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's predictable, I guess. Yeah. So— You know, in the Obama administration, I worked in the Obama administration, the situation was sort of trending toward crisis. The structure of the situation lent itself to having a nuclear confrontation, unfortunately. And the reason why everything was stable in Korea during the Obama era was because even though we had forces positioned, even though we had the ability to quote-unquote fight tonight, right? Even though we were squeezing North Korea with sanctions and North Korea was racing to the nuclear finish line. Despite all of those material pressures toward crisis and confrontation, the U.S. was not making threats. The rhetorical environment did not accommodate the possibility of attacking North Korea. And so that's what changed with Trump. You had everything uniquely situated in Korea to fight a war on a moment's notice, You could make credible threats of a a nuclear holocaust and the other side would believe them. And it it was like this on both sides of the peninsula. And then you added to that all of these threats that were saying literally, like, we're going to attack you. You've crossed a line. And in various colorful ways, over and over and over and over, we were mimicking Pyongyang with our brinkmanship rhetoric, with the insults. And that was a recipe for disaster.
1: Right. So uh, you think some stage North Korea was thinking, oh my God, they're actually going to do something. We're we're actually going to have to make good on these threats at this point.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, Kim Jong-un has the ultimate interest in observing indicators of imminent war. And they've told us since the 90s, look, if we think you're going to invade us, we're not going to be like Saddam Hussein and just take it on the chin. Right. We're going to hit you first. Okay. So they're paranoidly looking out from their border for these indicators of war. All the indicators of war were lit up in 2017 and 2018, including the rhetoric part, which was missing in the Obama era. The only thing we hadn't done is uh, what's called a non-combatant evacuation operation, a NEO. Basically, you take out American civilians before you go in and bomb stuff because you don't want to kill civilians. Right. The problem with that is once you take out civilians, everyone knows, oh, the military's about to go yeah, in there, yeah. right? So that's like the ultimate indicator of imminent war. Trump flirted with that. He was gonna tweet that. There was a fake text message and Facebook alert to American civilians in Korea that said we are doing a neo get out. Oh god. They were fake. Yeah. But if if Kim Jong-un's monitoring that, yeah. or if he's see like he's he's has every incentive to be paranoid for first strike reasons, yeah. you know? And so we were on the edge, even with that civilian evacuation. But other than that, every single indicator of war you would look for was lit up. And so for Kim Jong-un, it's like, okay, well, if this is inevitable, I might as well go first. And that was where the real, real danger was.
1: Okay, Looking at your doomsday clock now, going into this second summit, uh, where are we in terms of uh, danger of a future U.S. conflict with North Korea?
0: That's actually a very good question. That's a good way to frame it. so the, if the doomsday clock was two minutes to midnight in yep. 2017, we are none of the stuff that's happening now is moving it back further. Okay. And the reason is because none of the stuff that's happening now, even though it's, it's positive, right? Diplomacy is a good thing. Uh, it's much better than war. Nobody's making threats. The, that's one that's very low standard. But the, the thing that would move the needle back from two minutes to midnight to 10 minutes to midnight or something would be addressing, using diplomacy to address how many nukes, Kim Jong-un has, how many missiles he has, where are they, how operational are they, how many launchers does he have, are we controlling these things, are we reducing the number of them, are we reducing the range of North Korea's missiles? That's what what the threat is, that's what made the crisis possible, and that's what's directly not being addressed at all in all the stuff that's happening. So like, if we're keeping our eye on the prize, which is avoiding nuclear war, maintaining nuclear stability long term, then we shouldn't be focused on the personal relationships or declaration of the end of the Korean War, any of this stuff, which is fine. that's all good. The measure of the success of all that stuff that sounds good is whether it's affecting the nuclear numbers, the inventory, the warheads. That's the real measure of stability. And so far, that's not, we're not even talking about it with North Korea.
1: Uh, There were reports last week that uh, the Japanese Prime Minister had been politely asked by the US government to nominate President Trump for a Nobel Peace Prize for his uh, efforts in opening up a dialogue with North Korea. Let's hear a little bit from the President on whether he thinks he's deserving of this recognition.
0: I think I can say this. Prime Minister Abe of Japan gave me the most beautiful copy of a letter that he sent to the people who give out a thing called the Nobel Prize. He said, I have nominated you or, respectfully, on behalf of Japan, I am asking them to give you the Nobel Peace Prize. I said, thank you. Many other people feel that way, too. I'll probably never get it, but that's okay. They gave it to Obama. I did get the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, really? What was that for?
1: To be honest, I still don't know. <laughs> you deserve the Nobel Prize,
0: do you think? Everyone
1: thinks so, but I would never say it. <laughs> One of Japan's biggest newspapers, Asahi Shimbun, reported the nomination came at the behest of Washington. And again, diplomacy with North Korea is good, but this is still the same guy who wanted to ban Muslims, called Mexicans rapists, said we should kill the families of terrorists, and said he wanted fewer immigrants from Africa and Haiti. If he won a Nobel, his speech would be the first in history with an NC-17 rating. That's very nice,
0: thank you. That's very nice. Right. No bell.
1: <laughs> Van, how worthy of that accolade do you consider him?
0: Uh, not very. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I knew the answer to that question.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, he's the one who sort of brought us to the brink, right? right? He's the one who ignored risks of nuclear war in 2017. Mm-hmm. right? Obama in 2015 publicly ruled out military attack on North Korea. He's like, look, it's a million-man army. They got us artillery aimed at Seoul. It's game over. And they got nukes. Game over. We're going to keep squeezing them because that's what we do because they're they're bad guys, you know. And he's like, but we know it's not going to change them, and it's just a crappy situation, and it is what it is, but we're not going to strike them. He said that publicly on the record. You know what I mean? And Trump now says oh, we were going to be in an Obama war if not for me, except he's the one who turned the crisis on. He took a bad situation, he made it worse, Mm -hmm. and now he's trying to tell us he deserves a Nobel Prize. Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding? We're being extorted right now by this personal chemistry thing between Trump and Kim Jong-un, because either one of them could credibly go back to fire and fury at a moment's notice, and they'd they'd be justified in a rational sense because the nuclear situation has not changed. This is all just fluff on top of a nuclear situation that is not changing, and that scares me.
1: Had Obama not got a Nobel, do you think Trump would be in any way interested in receiving one?
0: I don't know, to be honest, if he knows what a Nobel Peace Prize is. (laughs) He just knows Obama had one and he wants one.
1: Uh, Looking forward to the 2020 election, uh, what do Democrats do on North Korea policy? Do you expect we're going to see any candidates develop any actual sort of meaningful positions or are they going to continue to sort of rely on this reactive criticism of Trump mostly?
0: Yeah, so I was just in D.C. for a couple of weeks, uh, book tour, but also talking with some of the politicos. And they... Are not settled. The Democratic Party and none of the candidates have clear positions on North Korea policy yet. In part, it's because look, as long as we're not going to war with North Korea, it's just not the priority. Yeah. Right? It's the spread of authoritarianism, transnational corruption, reform of international institutions, climate change. Like that's what the Democratic Party is about. North Korea, it's like, well, they're a bad guy, we don't want them to attack anybody, but like that's pretty, you know, that's just not the priority for them. Um, But that's good and bad, right? It's bad in the sense that they might inherit the default sort of anti-Trump position. And if Trump is the one who's using the words peace and diplomacy, as fake as it is, if they just knee-jerk react to that, then they've been maneuvered into this space that's actually not progressive. You know, and that's the sort of jujitsu trick that Trump has been doing on the Democratic Party It's just like narrowing them into this space where they're the ones who are trying to hold the realistic kind of semi-hawkish position. Um, And meanwhile, North Korea is not doing anything different than normal, but they're getting a way different reaction from the U.S. because Trump's, you know, an anomaly.
1: Presidential contenders like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren um, uh, only seem to talk about international affairs sort of more as they pertain to American workers or the U.S. economy, uh, almost in a a Trump-like fashion. Do you think public diplomacy or foreign policy is really a concern to your average American voter going into this election, something like North Korea really going to play into their decision-making?
0: Short of a crisis, no, right? Not for the average American. For a couple of the candidates, specifically Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they have established pretty, like, thoughtful foreign policy platforms. There's this big gaping hole in North Korea for both of them. But they have a vision of extending the kind of just society vision that they have domestically, externally. And what that necessarily means, uh, as I understand it right now, talking to folks, they those two in particular, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, yep. they they see a need to harken back to a kind of progressivism like we had in the 1930s. So not the anti-Vietnam War, anti-intervention, progressivism, where you're basically just pacifist, hippies. That's like not what's appropriate to the moment. What's appropriate is trust-busting, anti-monopoly, regulation of big tech, fight the fascists in Spain. You're active abroad. Right. You're not trying to start wars, you're trying yeah. to prevent them, but you have a cause, you have a belief about the causes of war, and it's structural inequality. And so you've got to address that structural inequality, that means you have to be part of the world. You have right. to be internationalist. Right. It doesn't mean leading with your military foot, but you know what? Sometimes you do. Like, it dep- like if you're, are you facing down Franco's Spain? Because fascism is the threat in the progressive worldview, you know? Um, so that's like a reorientation of American foreign policy, yeah. but it's very activist. It's just, the problem is it doesn't tell you what to do about problems like North Korea.
1: Yeah. Uh, Van Jackson, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks, man. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And if you're so inclined, leave us a review as well. Thanks this week to Free Mountains, Ketzer, Lloyd Rogers, and the Bubba Mara Brass Band for their musical contributions. And to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance.